Welcome to the Menu Bar. I'm your host, Zach Saichi. We have a great episode in store for you this week, but I just want to preface this by saying that the audio quality is not quite up to our usual standard. Some technical hiccups over Skype made it impossible to edit out some of the delay and general issues here. But you know what? The conversation is so good that I've decided to go ahead and just release this anyway. This week we are joined by EDM musician Ben Watkins, a.k.a. Juno Reactor, about what turns him on creatively, the delight of collaborating with the Wachowski siblings on the Matrix sequels, our shared love of movies like Barbarella, and of course we talk about his latest album, and much more. This is episode 27, The Mutant Theater, with Juno Reactor. Welcome to the Menu Bar, a place to relax, talk tech, and drink. Welcome to the Menu Bar, Ben. Uh, it's it's honestly an honor to have you on the show. Usually we, we start the show by asking our guests what, what they're drinking. Tea. Tea. All right. <laughs> tea, tea, tea and snuff. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little early for uh, alcohol this morning, so I'm just, I'm just sipping some water. <laughs> Um, so I'm pretty familiar with your work, uh, but our audience may not be. Um, so just to kind of get our audience up to speed, who is Juno Reactor and where did you come up with the name Juno Reactor? Well, um, the actual name Juno Reactor comes from an installation piece and uh, that was called the Juno Reactor that was set up on the River Thames in sort of 1989, no, 19, 1991, something like that. And cool. um, then it was like very much the beginning of, at the time already wasn't so into doing anything sort of commercial, it was just really responding to the scene that was happening in India and musicians were coming back and DJs were coming back and I met this guy called Mike Maguire who worked up at the distribution centre for selling records and he started telling me all about it and saying, hey, your music's so close to what they're playing. In fact, they're playing some of your tunes already. Wow. And um, told me all about the psychedelic parties and taking loads of acid. And <laughs> and then um, he said, well, well, I think I said to him, come in, let's write a tune and the first tune that we wrote together was High Energy Protons. And I'd already been working in that whole sort of EBM style, more industrial, electronic, and really been doing quite a lot of psychedelic stuff right. pre that. And it just felt like a really a good way, it just felt so natural. And so by the time that there was like 10 tracks ready, I then went to Mute Records and said, do you want to release it? And they said, yeah, they'd love to. In fact, I think I just tried to get them to to get a single, and they said no. We'd like the whole album, and wow, that really kicked it off. And then you know the response from you know because like India and Go at that time was a really small, cliquey set of people, like-minded people who loved sort of different music and very varied types of music, and so it just sat. It was like a the source of that whole type of music that then went around the world. So soon we were like playing in Japan and in America and just doing all these really underground type of things. And so it was very much sort of space-driven, space landscapes. And and that sort of lasted really for, I suppose, up until Bible of Dreams. Right. Yeah, uh, Bible of Dreams, that's kind of like, uh, it was sort of a turning point, I think, for your sound, right? Um, I think I just got bored of the whole sort of spaciness of everything. And yeah. I, I was like working in South Africa with the record label. And we went to uh, Botswana. Was it Botswana? No. Um, Namibia. And we went on the border of Botswana to where the Bushmen lived the sand people and we filmed and recorded them and I met a load of musicians there and they're all sort of like very earth earthy percussionists like Mabith Obajani and I was producing a Zulu band there 
and I just really wanted to take the tone of the albums far more natural and really mix it up far more electronic and real stuff, you know? Right, right. That uh, that album, um, I've listened to that album so many times. Uh, it's it's one of my one of my all time favorite albums, uh, Bible of Dreams. I was I think that might have been my introduction to your work. Um, I can't I can't maybe you. I want to say that I started listening to you, to you around the year two thousand when Pistolero came out. Um, but I think I backtracked from there and started, you know, digging into all of your music and yeah, no, that's a, that's, that was a great album. Yeah. It was very enjoyable. It was really enjoyable to make and it felt really easy and natural to make. Yeah. Uh, so would you, I mean, so I, I had a hard time when I was just trying to think like what genre is Juno Reactor? Like it's EDM, it's Psytrance, it's psychedelic. How would you personally kind of define your sound? Uh, well, <clears throat> it's cinematic, I suppose, and it's a bit like yeah, yeah. a car crash where all the radios are on different stations, and <laughs> and then it's like in a washing machine. So, like when I'm being really um, open about it and writing albums that I suppose are more. Um, spread musically influenced I can really go a long way but I don't in this modern day of pigeonholing everything it doesn't really help right so you know I can go off in many different angles and I shouldn't really so I'm sort of trying to sort of rein myself in as to what people expect of Juno Reactor to a degree and so that's possibly the hardest thing when I'm writing an album is thinking you know, it's not just me. I've got to please, you know, I've got to... The people who want to buy it or listen to it, I need to please them as well. Yeah, is it... So, I mean, so you don't like to box yourself in. You don't like to box in, like, what your sound is. Is it is it difficult to, um, to release albums these days, you know, with the way that streaming music services work, with the way that digital distribution works... Have the dynamics in the in the industry sort of affected the way that you think about uh, the music that you make? Um, to a degree, I mean, I still feel an album is a journey, and right. it, and it should very much sort of represent the time that you live in, or represent the time that I live in. And um, when well, you seem like a very like album driven. Uh, artists, whereas I, f- I feel like increasingly artists are more sort of like singles driven these days. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's the way it has been going. I mean, I find that if I get someone's album, I might like one or two tracks. And right. and whereas I, I find it harder to, I prefer to see something that's like been built up from the ground up specifically for an album. Right? Like a story. Yeah, story, take it. I mean, that's where I come from with the albums that I really love is where you feel like it's a bit of a story. And, you know, like Lou Reed's Berlin. Absolutely. Or, you know, Aladdin Sane or just a whole visual. You know, with a single, you can't really give anything like a whole visual presence to something. Is very sort of one-off. And I think, but music nowadays is very throwaway and its relevance is far less than it used to be which I think is a shame. Yeah, something I, I kind of lament is the fact that it just doesn't seem like kids just like, like... I remember being a kid and like turning out all the lights in my room with like a laser pointer and uh, just like turning on, uh, you know, Dark Side of the Moon uh, with like a candle lit and just kind of meditating with the album, you know what I mean? And I don't, I don't feel like kids do that these days. And, I think they uh, do. They just listen. To, I don't know what they do, but they just definitely get just as stoned. But um, right. maybe it's just more random choice. Yeah, I mean, there's such an, an abundance of content these days, right? Like, people just have access to unlimited, you know, whatever you want on a platter, right? Exactly, through YouTube or streaming and people's attention's different. So it's like, it's really amazing when I still get a lot of people coming back saying I really love the album and they've gone out and bought it or they're wanting it signed. And so it's really, it's nice. It's, you know, maybe a smaller clique 
but it's still a very nice feeling. Yeah. Um, so your your interest in um, so I, I take it you have like an interest in psychedelics. Is would that be accurate? Not a massive one. You know, I'm not obsessed with it. You know, right. It's not my life. You know, it's definitely it has been interesting, but it's just like another bus stop on the journey. You know, right? Yeah, it just uh, just looking at you know your albums, your music, the artwork associated with um, it's it. You know, I've always assumed <laughs> that some of this was was inspired by some maybe experiences that you've had. Um, yeah, definitely experiences I've had, but not necessarily yeah. psychedelic. You know, it's like, um, I mean, I think possibly some of the things that I experience visually, I like things to be psychedelic or psychedelic is quite a big word and can sort of encompass many different things, but say like more unusual, a different angle looking at, um, just looking at life through life through a different prism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tend to, if you look at a lot of psychedelic art, it all looks the same, and a lot of it looks fucking crap. Right. You know, so it's like sort of, I'd hate my I'd hate my psychedelic dreams to look like them. <laughs> a lot of it's just pretty like scary and weird and bizarre. Well, like sort of yeah. super overtly um, figurative. Right. And like as if you're meant to go, oh wow, this guy must have spent two years doing this tiny little face. And it's like, um, with all this detail, and it's like, it doesn't do anything for me. It's almost like sort of semi, um, a lot of, a lot of this really highly digitized or recreated digitized figurative work, um, just looks really sort of semi soft porn. (laughs) You know, it's like, I'm thinking, oh no, this is so shit and everyone loves it. Yeah, and it yeah. represents this sort of scene. I'm thinking, you know, it doesn't really... It. I wish it did more for me than it does because it pleases a lot of other people, but I just don't get into it. Right, right. Um, how did you... Uh, so it, actually one uh, one way that I think that my audience will be very familiar with your work is The Matrix. Um, how did you come to uh, work on... Work well. Work with the the Wachowski siblings, Don Davis. How did that? How did that all come together? I'd, um, <clears throat> I was in the hairdressers, I think, in Brighton, oh. and this guy said to me, um, "Oh, I hear the Matrix guys are wanting to chat to you about the music." And I went, mm, first I've heard of it," and that sort of right. got me excited. And I thought, anyway, two years later. Um, my manager got got a phone call from their office and they said, you know, would Ben be up for coming out for a meeting to LA? And I think this was like November and walked in their office and like the first poster that I saw on the wall was this one um, Chinese ghost story. And it was one of my favorite films at the time. And, uh, then I went in, meet them, and they said, you know, we'd really like you to do the music to the freeway chase. Do you fancy this? We want you to sort of mix the orchestra and the electronic together. And then they started talking about Hitchcock and Truffaut. And that was one of my favourite book. So we had lots of, like, little things. And then they said, well, we want this mix of orchestra and electronic. And I played them a track that was, like, what I was working on, which was orchestra and electronic. And they said, look, we'd love you to come back, just sort out a studio in L.A. and come back in January. Right, yeah. Uh, the uh, the music in The Matrix that you did uh, is unbelievable. <laughs> it's it's some of my favorite, you know, compositions that I've ever heard. Um, particularly Navris. Like, for me, that, uh, that track is kind of, like, up there with, you know, like, some of the best... Um, you know, dual music, right? And in, like, cinema history. It's just a really fantastic track. Yeah, Navras was a really great thing to do. It's just such a dense, um, layered track. Um, and such a... Like, it's it's sort of whole unto itself. Like, even, even, like, separate from the film, like, I can just listen to that track and it almost tells its own, its own story. It's just such a... 
such a great track. It was really, it was strange because that was for the second film, well, the third film, my third, second, yeah. my second, because right. I did two and three, and um, they originally just asked me. They said, "Look, there's, um, can you do like two minutes of music for the end credits and base it on this piece that Don had written?" And right. um, I said, "Yeah, but I have to write a lot more to it than just that." And they said, well, look, go away, come back. So I kept, a couple of days later, I came back with the intro and they said, this is brilliant. Do another two minutes. Came back a few more days later and gave them that. And they said, hey, do six. So I had six minutes and it was getting really involved by this time. And then I played them the six minutes. And they said, oh, bollocks, just do all of it. Do the whole thing, do nine minutes. Wow, wow. And so, but it was actually the easiest piece of music I've ever had to write and work on. Because things like, I mean, Don had written a nice piano sort of piece, but I had to really lobotomize it because it was a bit too orchestrally clever. And right. um, and then all the people that I got in, like Lachmi Shankar, who used to sing with George Harrison from the Beatles. Oh, wow. She came in and she was like 70 years old at the time. And she just did this most amazing vocal in like two takes. I knew I had everything. In fact, I did the second take just to be polite so that she didn't feel like she'd wasted her time. <laughs> and um, yeah, she was amazing. Then Azam Ali did some amazing vocals. And I had Mabith Obajani from South Africa there doing percussion. And I had this flute bansuri player so azam ali she uh, i'm i'm pretty familiar with her work she's she's an incredible vocalist i i actually i don't i don't think i realized that she had worked on that track yeah she did all the shanty shanty stuff oh wow and uh, yeah, i mean there's a lot i mean there's a lot all the contributors to that track really added a lot and really in all fairness if it was um Equal it, they should have got like a publishing share as well of the track, but because they were sessions, they weren't ready. Okay. But I think that happens a lot, right? And um, but they gave so much, and and ever it's just one of those weird tracks where everything worked, and I never had to go back and redo anything. So, like on a lot of tracks, you might go, Oh, this is shit, do something else, right. okay, that's shit, do something else, everything worked. You know, it was just sort of a situation where it just kind of all flowed out. Yeah, very unusual because it sounds like it's my most complex piece of music, you know, and but actually it felt the easiest out of the lot. Yeah. Were you already uh, a fan of The Matrix uh, or of the Wachowskis work? I'm, I'm a fan of films anyway. So like the fact right. that it was for The Matrix was pretty bizarre must have been kind of a pretty surreal like mind-blowing experience just to just to be there working on on the matrix well it's weird when you're there and you're doing it it's a bit like on being on a cliff face you don't really think from the bottom of the cliff because you're on the cliff face and you might get the sack people are trying to get you the sack you know other people who have invested interests from like whether it's warner brothers or whatever so it's a bit like put on your crash helmet and wait for someone to stab you in the back some of the time. But luckily I'm stupid enough to sort of not really notice it so much. And then when you finish the job, um, you realise all of the political elements that were really surrounding you at the time. And it's quite a mir- you know, quite a miracle that I actually ended up finishing the stuff rather than being sacked. Yeah, no, it's um, it was such a, it, it felt like such a perfect collaboration. You know, the the Wachowskis sort of um, their aesthetic and the way that they think, and there's seem there was a lot of synergy. I feel well, like. they were they were really amazing. I'd say out of all the people I've worked with, either in film or in music, they were the best musical producers because they would just say things to me. And maybe we just had this, like, um, really good feeling between us, but they would just point me in directions that I I knew exactly what they were talking about, and they had really great ears. 
they would suggest things like I went in with the train man, I went in with the piece, and they said you've got to you've got to break eggs to make scrambled eggs because they were talking about all the other elements that I had to use and that really made sense. And then they said, where you've finished off this tempo, that's where we want you to start. And so it like threw me in a spin for a little bit, but then I realised exactly how much it had helped. And they were so good. They were just really... Um, I always knew what they were thinking. I always seemed to have their trust and um, and they believed in it. So... I couldn't really ask for more. Well, it definitely, it, it turned out fantastic, I feel like, that entire collaboration. Um, yeah, no, and I'm sure that was a pretty big boon for your career as well. Yeah, I think I think so. It's definitely, I mean, it possibly saved my life. Yeah. As a, as a, as a musician. <laughs> right. <laughs> In many ways, not necessarily financially or anything like that. Because um, I just think creatively they allowed me to think in a different way and to work in a different way. It seems like it's rare to have that kind of collaborative experience in Hollywood. Uh, you know, most of the time it seems like people just sort of get contracted out to do work, whereas it sounds like they were very, very hands-on, very involved in every aspect of that process. And they would, like, I'd meet up with them on reloaded like maybe every two or three days just a lot of uh a lot of synergy in the way that way that you you guys thought i suppose well i had to learn you know when i went there i had to learn a lot and they gave me a music editor called zig zig gron and i pretty much said to him on the first night i said i know jack shit had to write a score to a blockbuster (laughs) and uh can you help me? And his like, he's a bit, he reminded me a bit of like the guy out of Better Call Saul. He's a bit like Saul Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> so he's always got an art. He was like really amazing. He would like show me all these things and say, okay, we've got to hit this. We've got to hit that. We've got to hit this. And, um, and he was like my real, he was like my armor, my right hand man and a great music editor in Hollywood. That's what they are, you know? And he was fantastic. He was invaluable. And without Zig, I doubt I would have made it through to the end of the first track. And um, let alone the first film. So, I mean, I stuck with him all the time. And he really, sh- he taught, it was like being at university or something. Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny the way that... Uh things kind of come together in life, you know, something that's consistent with people that I talk to is, you know, they didn't necessarily go to school for this or that, but, you know, things just kind of added up in a certain way. And uh, it sounds like this was kind of a, you know, the just sort of a go, go with the flow of the universe kind of thing. Right. Definitely. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it happens more than once in your life. And I think that was it. You know, I can't imagine that I could ever feel better or more comfortable or more relaxed or more excited or more creative than that actual period in my life. And everything since that point has felt like I'm going at 10 miles an hour as opposed to 200. Yeah. You know, so it's um, other things excite me, but I don't think anything will have feel so good as that particular experience yeah it was kind of the the peak experience right like it's just (laughs) totally the ultimate i always wanted like i remember the first time that i went to hollywood and we watched a film with uh my music in with i think we were playing this place called fetish and fuck in LA, which was like an S and M club. That sounds that sounds like a fun place. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really funny. It was really funny because Goa Gill was there as well, and he was like really shocked. He's like a total hippie dude, and um, they're having sex in front of him, and they're having sex in front of the drum, the drummer, and everything. Everywhere there was like loads of sort of people doing it. Right. But uh, I think we went to see the Chinese theatre and we saw 
God, what was that awful film? Uh, Denzel Washington and someone else in... The guy who's in Gladiator. Oh, um... Hmm. What is his name? God. Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, yeah, him. Yeah. It was some bloody awful film and they had like three tracks of ours in it. And the first mm-hmm. one was covered up by Gunfire, which I'd written okay. <laughs> I'd written with the German Johann Bley. And he was like marching up and down the aisles in fury for most of the film <laughs> after seeing that little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and the next was a bit with Tracy Lords in who had just produced and some other remix or whatever. And so it was like totally the reverse of like, you know, staying in really shitty motels. Actually, no, actually, that was a nice hotel, that one. But um, <laughs> but very, very, very sort of, you know, cockroachy, styly. And then, right. you know, to then end, end up doing some stuff in, you know, I had pretty much a whole mansion in Silver Lake to do the soundtrack and black limos every other day. And so it was a very out-of-world experience for me. Yeah, so you've kind of you've kind of run the gamut in terms of different kinds of experiences you can have in terms of collaborating in Hollywood. I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm more, hopefully I haven't had the last. You know, I'd still Absolutely. obviously love to do it again, but um, I think I possibly had the best one because it was... I hear so many horror stories from composers about right. the directors being such arseholes or the producers being such arseholes. And I've met some of them, so I know exactly what they're talking about. (laughs) Right. All right, I got to interrupt for a second to tell you guys about LinkedIn. In just about any line of work, the right hire can make a huge impact on your business. It's so critical finding the right person for the job. But where can you find such a person? You could spend all sorts of time posting on job boards, but can you really be sure that the right person will see your job? I've got a better idea. Save yourself some time and just go with LinkedIn. It's the world's largest professional network on earth, and people go there every single day to grow professionally and discover new job opportunities. Seriously, over 70% of the entire U.S. workforce is already there, and there's good reason why. LinkedIn matches people to your role based on who they really are, based on skills, interests, and how open they are to new job opportunities. Using LinkedIn, your job will get seen by the right people. Again, don't waste your time with job boards. Here's some stats for you. Most LinkedIn members have not recently visited a job board, but 9 out of 10 of them are open to new job opportunities. That's why a hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. Businesses rate LinkedIn as 40% more likely than job boards at delivering high-quality candidates. So here's the deal, just for menu bar listeners. Head over to linkedin.com slash menu and you'll get $50 off your first job post. That's right, linkedin.com slash menu to get $50 off your first job post. Thank you so much to our friends at LinkedIn and back to the show. Uh, so are you, um, would you consider yourself a, a spiritual person? Uh, spiritual. I don't, I don't study any, any religion. No particular religion? No. I think if I'm anything, I'm pagan. Okay. But I'm not even that. I think yeah. my, my uh, religion is uh, my music. That's interesting. That's so the, the the music itself is kind of what what kind of keeps you going and gives you meaning. Definitely, I go crazy if I don't write stuff. Actually, my yeah. body starts like it feels like there's some insect underneath my skin that's about to pop. Right. So it's sort of um, it's quite a physical thing if I haven't been writing. Uh, yeah, some something. It doesn't have to be a new idea. It can be some really boring idea that I've done a million times before but i think it's new yeah the only reason i the, re- the reason i ask if you're a spiritual person is i i just get the the sense from your music that like oftentimes i'll be listening and it's like it's almost transcendental it's almost like like i'm having a a spiritual experience like listening to uh certain tracks like well I've, i'm interested so. in religion yeah i'm interested in spirituality but I'm, I wouldn't really say I don't study any spirituality and I don't totally. follow I don't follow any doctrine totally I and mean, the way that I uh, tend to describe myself is like uh, I'm, I'm like an atheist with benefits <laughs> um, like you know sort of like uh, if if a door-to-door person comes then then my door is closed I just say I'm an atheist but kind of off off to the side, uh, I'm into some pretty, you know, hippy-dippy woo-woo stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if... I mean, I was brought up like a Christian, 
Okay. And uh, then working through all of that stuff, I think, can take a long time. Yeah, I was just thinking with a lot of the imagery and stuff that you seem to be attracted to. I love the imagery, yeah. I love the imagery and I love the music. You know, without the church, we wouldn't wouldn't have harmony. And, well, would we or would we not? I don't know. But um, it was like the church was like the record company for a lot of musicians. And they'd go off and and it already developed from there through the church. A lot of it developed through the church, so... There's all this amazing music to go through. Absolutely. Um, so when you uh, when you go to record an album um, or work on an album, how does your creative process work? I think it's different every time. I mean, I've got one of these brains that it's a bit like a sieve. So all information that goes through it generally falls out again. And right. so like if... Um, I'd say with this album, it was different because I knew what I was writing it for. And so I'd started off this idea of the mutant theatre and I really wanted the album to reflect some of the live show and I had to write certain tracks specifically for the show. So it gave me like a real framework to put the album together with. So it was different in that respect. So do you do you generally um, start with like a, a concept in your head or do you kind of just, you know, fiddle around until you bump into things? Pretty much. I fiddle yeah. around and bump into things millions of times, even when I know what I'm doing. And uh, But things like my agent was saying to me for ages, hey, look, you should really do a follow-up to Pistolero. And right, yeah. And um, I thought, what a dumb idea, you know, that's sort of not going to work. And he said, well, just think of it in the way that you write Conquest of Door Part 1 and Conquest of Door Part 2, you know, just do do like another version. And, um, and that got me thinking. So I then started it. And then when I started it with the guitarist Amir, who's also now Hans Zimmer's guitarist, He's like an wow. oud. He's like a multi instrumentalist and is amazing. So he he plays the oud. He plays the flamenco guitar. He plays heavy metal guitar. He's and is amazing on stage. So getting him into the studio was brilliant, and we put down ideas for like Alien, and then we wrote the tune to Return of the Pistolero, and and it all kicked off from there really. But sadly, the guy who suggested it then killed himself in October so he never oh, he never got to hear it. Oh that's 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 awful. Yeah, it sucks, huh? Yeah, no. Man. But um but yeah, it was a good idea. Uh, absolutely. Uh it's a that's a fantastic uh track. Uh, you don't seem like someone who uh spends a lot of time sort of revisiting your old work. I like it, yeah. but I don't like listening to it so much. It's um it's a bit like looking in the mirror. Right. You always kind of uh, focused on the future. Or maybe even, maybe even the present moment, right? I think present is cool enough, yeah. Right. So it's sort of... Um, I, I don't really hear mistakes or anything like that with the, old, with the older stuff, but I just... I like to... I have to move on and try and think of where I want to take it. I think that's the the best way to approach the creative process. I feel like a lot of people tend to get kind of stuck in, you know, maybe they had a hit a long time ago um, and they try to kind of conjure that back up. Whereas I feel like with you, it's more like you're always, you know, trying to do something new, always trying to break through to the next, you know, the next barrier. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm... um... Pretty much when I'm in the studio, I'm just trying to interest me and not fall asleep. You know, usually when I've got a really bad idea, I fall asleep. It's like what, what, whatever can keep you turned on, basically. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Like the suits, like talking of let's turn on. I mean, that the suits to the whole mutant theater was a big inspiration. And specifically for that track, let's turn on. Yeah, that that's actually something I wanted to talk to you about because so I watched this video um, a few months ago, whenever it came out, 
and it's like it's like fucking Tron on steroids. It's like it's a bonkers video. And the thing that was really impressive about it is near as I can tell, like it's all practical. Um, like is are are all those suits like just is that just lights? That's not there's no uh, computer graphics or anything like no, that. No, there's no there's no computer graphics beyond the right. suit. So the the suit has like um, I think three thousand LED lights in. Jeez. And it's controlled by Wi-Fi and another program, and then you can draw into it whatever you want. Wow. And it's very interesting, and it's and live when people see it for the first time, it's it really does knock you sideways a bit. Yeah. No. Uh there's it's absolutely incredible um the uh the other thing that occurs to me is you seem to be very invested in the live aspect of your music i love i mean i love taking it to the live stage and trying to uh, especially with the mutant theater there's so many possibilities and i've got people ringing up talking about wanting to take it to broadway or whether to do like a residency in vegas and these ideas and you don't know whether they're just bullshit hot air or whatever but the whole mutant theater i think has so much potential to do some really quite unusual things inside and the only restriction at the moment is financial it's not creative well but i mean uh certainly things have maybe gotten easier just as technology has gotten you know cheaper um like the, the these suits i don't i don't think they were even possible you know like 10 years ago <laughs> they're they're pretty crazy i don't think they were possible 10 years ago yeah how did uh how did you how did you bump into that stuff like well i was working i've been working in russia quite a lot well not a lot actually and i met my first mutants around sort of 2011 and then i bumped and i oh know was it i was in india that was it I was on an island in India doing a show and suddenly these glass uh, aliens jumped up on stage with fire and everything. <laughs> and I thought, well, I thought that's, that's rather cool. And yeah. um, they'd travelled down from Goa, which was about nine hours, to come and dance with, with the band. Awesome. And um, so I kept in touch, and then I met the other mutants from Moscow, the sort of predator ones, and Longshanks and Bigfoot, uh, the two sort of guardians to the mutant theatre. And um, and I think it was after we did uh, we did Azora in twenty fifteen that the promoter said to me, "Look, I love the band, and we loved your show this year, but can you come back next year with something different?" Right. And so I I said to him, well, I've got an idea, but I better put it all down on paper for you. And and then presented him the Mutant Theatre and he they all went, yeah, let's do it. It was quite expensive, but um, it was really worth it. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. It's, uh, yeah, this... this this whole album and the way that it's, uh, the way that it's come together, uh, it's, it's a really great album. It's probably one of my, it's like listening to it almost every day on my commute. So it's, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's great stuff. Uh, so with this album, did you have, was, was it more of a, of a concept, you know, around the mutants and, you know, did you just kind of go different places there in, in your mind or? Well, I thought, thought I, I saw the mutant theaters really as being our world, the world that okay. we live in, that we treat it as so normal, but everything is so fucked. That is true. Absolutely. And um, so it's really like, um, um, for me, you know, uh, just uh, our world that we live in is incredibly mutant and and destructive and uh evil yeah no it's uh it, the it's definitely a mutant theater out there it's i mean you've got one as your president <laughs> absolutely we do <laughs> we've got <laughs> we've got one as his bitch <laughs> she's his fucking bitch she's awful <laughs> yeah no so is, is this album kind of a way for you to uh to deal with the 
kind of the current realities of, of politics and just the state of the world? I don't know. I mean, I think the more I learn about everything, it is more um, uh, depressing, really. But I, you can't really live in that state. Right. You know, so you actually have to, you can't carry the world on your shoulders, but you yeah, can you sort of... channel it somehow, right? Yeah, so things like, you know, Return of the Pistolero is like a bit like the story of him returning after 18 years or whatever it's been, where he's been in prison and blah, 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 and he comes out and now he's an eco-warrior sort of fighting for revolution and equality and the destruction of the corporations and global greed, you know. And that's that's where he's at, you know. He's like a he's turned from being the sort of uh, cartel gunman to being a environmental warrior. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Maybe there can be a sequel to uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico that <laughs> where we get Antonio Banderas as an eco warrior. Well, that was funny because they rung me up about that because they wanted to, you know, when I did Pistolero, I did an edit called the Tarantino Mix. Because at the time when I was writing Pistolero with Steve, I was watching all of like Dust Till Dawn and um, Mariachi and Desperado and blah, blah, blah. Great, great, great films, yeah. Yeah, just fun films like Popcorn, yeah? And so like in the CD of the booklet to Once Upon a Time in Mexico, they were saying that how how Pistolero inspired the making of the film, writing of the film. Oh, wow. And that was really cool. I, d- I did not know that up, t- up till now. So it was actually the, um, w- it was the song that inspired Robert Rodriguez to, to write the film? God knows. I think it was Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino together or something. Right. Yeah, they were, they were pretty close at that point, I think, creatively. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, that's what it says on, this, on the inside of the, of, the, of the CD sleeve. Right. And uh, I think I was quite lucky by just calling it the Tarantino mix because he obviously got to hear it and loved it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that was a, that was an absolutely fantastic track. The uh, I remember seeing the trailer for Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and it just like it blew my mind. The combination of the the music and the the visuals, and you know the the film the film that ultimately resulted was you know it was okay. Honestly, that trailer... <laughs> the trailer was, was great, a, yeah. It was a, a piece of artwork unto itself, right? Yeah, definitely. Sometimes the trailers are the best. Yeah, no, it's funny when that, when that can happen. Um, like, sometimes I get, the, I get the sense, like, oh, I want to go back and watch Once Upon a Time in Mexico. But really, I actually just want to go back and watch the trailer. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I think it's his, he hasn't seemed to have done much since then either. Yeah, he's uh, Robert Rodriguez has been kind of. I, I mean, love things just... like Death Proof and some of those ones. Those little oh, yeah. sh- other ones that yeah. they did together. Yeah, no, absolutely. He, I think I think the most recent thing he's done is he's working on um, Battle Angel Alita, um, the James Cameron produced thing. Okay. It's been this like long gestating project that James Cameron's been working on, and uh, yeah, kind of it was kind of surprising when I found out that Robert Rodriguez was directing it because uh, haven't really heard a lot from him in a, in a number of years. Yeah, mm. I mean Tarantino. I'm interested. I really want to see his what he does always. Always, yeah. No, Tarantino is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's possibly one of my favorite scores. For a long time, was the Hateful Eight. Yeah, no, that's such a good score. Amazing, so, amazing, so amazing, amazing score. Yeah. So you're you're really into film. I really like film. Yeah. Yeah. Is that is are films um, like an inspiration for your for your music? Always. Like just the the sort of cinematic aspect of of your music, right? Every every time I'm watching a film. I've when every time I'm writing a track I'm watching a film. Yeah. So it's only, the only problem I have is what film do I watch when I, you know, like I usually stick with the same film over the whole track so that I know, you know, I go into the studio, I turn on the film, I'm locked in, I'm back in more or less the right mentality. So yeah, so I, I can I can watch a film for months, the same film, yeah. <laughs> because it's it's a way of like watching, it's like way of watching something without watching something, 
but yet if you want to you know you've got your pleasant bits that you really like re-clicking into and so things like Barbarella were very much my um, track for Let's Turn On oh wow yeah Barbarella is my jam man that's such a great movie <laughs> I love that film like I get endless amounts of inspiration watching Barbarella there's just something about that film it's so fucking bonkers and crazy but also like the concepts in the movie are actually really clever really smart i love the clothes design all the costumes are really amazing and jane fond is at her best and yeah i love it it's such a great the whole aesthetic of of the film the and the um like the concept of the matmos um like it, it kind of, kind of makes me think of now. Actually, sort of this. There's some kind of, there's some kind of thing bubbling under the surface, you know, uh, feeding on negative energy. <laughs> Trump. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No. Bar- that's the thing. Barbarella has really stood the test of time because it's just kind of a timeless, timeless story. Uh, people write it off as like this, you know, almost like softcore porn thing, and it, it kind of is. But it's also, uh, it's just an amazing film. People should really check it out. I love it. I love it. And I just hope no one does a remake of it with... uh... They keep threatening to. Oh, it'd be awful. I know. In fact, I think think Robert Rodriguez was attached a couple times. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would probably watch it. But they should just leave it the fuck off. They'd more likely have like someone like Beyonce would be Barbarella. That would be interesting. But you can't. But but you. I don't know. But you can't do it like super high budget though. You got to do it like like mid range, like mid range budget guerrilla kind of filmmaking, experimental. You know, I don't. I don't feel like it. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know if I would want to see like the two hundred million dollar version of Barbarella. No, I don't think you know, I would. Disney presents Barbarella. Uh, it couldn't. It couldn't be so beautifully stupid, you know. Which is what's so lovely about that one, the original. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it was such a. It was a commentary on so many different things that were going on at the time. That's why I feel like I don't really know what place it would have uh, being remade now. Hmm. I suppose I suppose there's a lot there's enough going on you could do it, um, and the one benefit I guess of them doing a remake would be just be more people would would know about the original. Well, it's a bit like making Jaws again. You couldn't really yeah. make Jaws again because it couldn't be that stupid and sort right. of semi frightening as well. So yeah, right. hopefully yeah. maybe they'll just leave it alone and let it be. I, I think that's probably for the best. Um, of course, Hollywood being Hollywood, they'll eventually get to it anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that, that was part of my concept for the whole sort of mutant theatre live show, as well as that it's like a cross between Barbarella and uh, Pan's Labyrinth. So it's oh, got wow, yeah. the surrealism of Pan's Labyrinth and some of the kitsch type of things from Barbarella. Yeah, Um I, I don't know if I if I quite see the the like I think of Tron when I think of those when I see those suits right maybe um, yeah maybe but I don't I don't think of Tron Tron doesn't inspire me as a film it's like right. either of them the original or the remake you know yeah. I, I could never fall in love with those films but things like Pan's Labyrinth you know I think it's one of the best films ever made. Absolutely, yeah. No, uh, all all of Del Toro's work. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, so, what kind of uh, what kind of equipment do you use to make your music? Um, well, I predominantly stuck in the old world of analog synthesizers and um, you know making up sounds, recording things. Re- you know, going off, I've got this Zoom and I go off and record things and then slow them down or I've got cameras that I'll film and then I'll slow those things down and then I'll fuck around with those sound waves. <laughs> and yeah. um, so like a lot of old thing, you know, guitars, I love, although I haven't done many guitars on this album, it's already been quite electronic. So I've been finding out I've got bought maybe a couple of synths for this, like the DFAM by Moog, and I bought the SEO2 by Roland, which were two little fun 
boutique style synths and so do you like do you, do you go into a studio or do you do most of your stuff from home i've got a studio down the road gotcha. where i go to and um, spend most of my life in front of my desk <laughs> right so it's yeah. um yeah it's a good way to cut myself off from the rest of the world something i love about your music um as opposed to a lot of other electronic um, music that I hear, is there's this organic sound to everything that you do. Uh, whereas a lot of electronic music just sounds, you know, programmed and, you know, you listen to it a couple times and you kind of feel like you've, you know, you've heard it and you kind of move on. Um, your music, uh, the soundscapes that you create and sort of the cinematic nature of it and the way that you use synths um it's, it's just very there's a lot of texture to everything that you do yeah i think so i mean i think possibly there's too much you know when i listen to um like when i'm djing i realize that i put too much stuff in my <laughs> own things right compared to really what makes people jump up and down more you know, it's much easier to... It's not much easier because I don't think anything's particularly... It's not easy to write a great dance track. But some of the guys that I really like at the moment, like Bliss or GMS, they really cut it down to the bone and I'm really bad at cutting it down to the bone because I still like <laughs> all the things that I like, like the shadow sounds or what I call shadow sounds that sit behind the other sound, that sit behind the other sound. Well, I mean, I but but that's like, that's what differentiates you, right? Maybe, but it doesn't help when I want to DJ it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it doesn't, it doesn't make for a top, top 40 pop hit, right? Well, it doesn't help. I mean, not even top 40, but it's sort of like, it, it'd be nice if I could make my own tracks bounce off the dance floor better, right. you know, but I try, I do what I do. And that's, um... well, what's the, what's the vibe like of your live shows? Cause I, um, I've always, I've tried to go to your shows and it's always been a, been a thing where when you're, in the Seattle area, like there's just always something going on. Well, I haven't, I haven't been, I haven't been in Seattle for over ten years. Okay, that would also explain it. Yeah, I don't think I've been in America for ten years until I did the Las Vegas show in August. Okay, and it's just so hard to get into America to to bring like what I want to bring. Like, I mean, I might be coming out and doing some DJ shows around America. But what I really want to bring to America is the mutant theatre. And it's difficult when I've got 15 people and that's the small setup, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, to actually tour that in America is super difficult. And yeah, so the logistics has got to be a nightmare. It is. It's a nightmare, especially because like six of them or nine of them, depending on what crew I take, are like from Russia. And, um, but yes, yeah, so, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that some, you know, something will come together and we'll be able to bring it because it's really made for America. The whole thing is sort of far more, um, a showstopper type of show that I think America would really dig. Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, I absolutely would love to see you again. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> it's a bit been far too long. Yeah, when did you see the show? Um, like so, I know that I've seen you, but it's it was so long ago, and in sort of my dark past <laughs> that, that I don't remember exactly. It was um, the last time I toured, I think I, it was when I was working with a South African percussion group called Amampondo, and we were touring. It was just me and them touring. Okay, yeah. And were you in Seattle then? We did play Seattle. We played Seattle a few times. Yeah, it it probably was during that time. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got good memories of Seattle. It's a little, little, little dark and gloomy, but it's it's a good area. There's a lot of a lot of creativity here. Yeah, yeah. There's a good story about my um <laughs> my manager at the time. There was a real tit working for the record label who just kept on wanting cocaine all the time. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> and the, and uh, Mick had been given like this uh, sachet of crystal meth that he didn't want, 
and like this other guy who's just about to board a plane and said, Hey mate, you gotta give us some coke give us some coke And he yes. said, Oh I haven't got any and then he thought, Oh yes I have so he gave him the crystal meth. And he did all the crystal meth in one shoot and then spent a 12-hour flight. Uh, <laughs> that must have been uh, quite an experience. I think uh, they didn't speak again to each other after that. But so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those, uh, those, those record label executives, man. Yeah, naughty times. Yeah. So uh, that's another thing I want to get into with you is um, just, you know... How do you how do you feel about the current like you know just music landscape in terms of distribution marketing and like the role that record labels uh, play uh, these days? I don't have any answers for that. In as far as the, like, <laughs> like I'm still figuring this shit out. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's definitely still figuring out what's a better way to do it than the way I'm doing it. Because yeah. I don't think the way I'm doing it is working that great myself. So for me to give advice on someone else, I bet. Um, I think there's certain labels uh, that are really good, like Monster Cat, supposedly are really good, or that's what Infected Mushroom tell me. And they were yeah. like, uh, they weren't even like a, a record label, they were like a YouTube channel. Oh, and, really? um And so I think you know, like myself, where I'm stuck in my own ways of doing things and how I record and produce things, I think a lot of the time record companies are also a bit like that. You know, they they, they try to find new ways of jumping out the box, but they still sort of is... There's a lot of... Um, I don't feel that there's enough thought put into releases about how they should be brought to the people these days. And so, you know, for me, making the video in Russia with the mutants was quite a good way, you know, because it's so visual. But right. I think I think there's other labels that, that really you wouldn't normally think of that, you know, things like Monster Cat, I think it is Monster Cat, I'm not 100% sure, um, that are really good for exposure which is what really everyone's looking for with a record you know you spend two or three years making a record and once you've released it you do want people to actually get to see it or to hear it and blah 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 and right. um it's almost like you don't care how people get it in the end whether it's like through streaming or i mean personally i like it when they buy it and i like it when they suggest that you know that i do signed copies and it's definitely preferable to make money <laughs> yeah but i mean you don't even make that particular that much money out of it like i sold a lot of records just by signing them from here but i think yeah. by the time they're shipped over here from america i've paid the import tax i've yeah. paid the postage i've done this done that i don't think there's like you know, much left of it by the time it's sent out. But you know someone has got something that is more more than just a digital download. Yeah, that's something that uh, we recently had um, Rob Sheridan, who was the art director for Nine Inch Nails for a number of years. Uh, we talked to him a lot about just kind of lamenting the fact that, you know, artists used to be able to put a lot of like effort into packaging and into sort of the experience of an album release. Whereas, whereas these days it's like, you know, a lot of that is really kind of gone. The, the liner notes, the, you know, the, the artwork and all that things are just kind of put onto digital streaming platforms. And it's just very, the, the connection that fans have to it. It's just like, it's just another song. It's just another album in a kind of like a list of, of stuff in their playlist, you know? That's what Whereas, I quite like about um, the vinyls. You yeah, know, creating the vinyls again is really nice and seeing the covers and, you know, doing all the artwork for that is really, still really cool. But it's just a very, very, very limited audience that get to see it. And Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a... It feels almost like a dip into nostalgia as opposed to like a new way for people to interact, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, we've got things like, although, you know, we've got Instagram. You would never have got, I, w I would have quite That's liked true. to have seen Instagram with David Bowie in the time of Ziggy Stardust. I think that would have been really pretty cool. You That's know, true. I, I was pretty much watching, 
any picture of David Bowie at that time I would like to sort of look at for ages and so maybe it's like you know if you're following Katy Perry or whoever it is maybe you're getting turned on by her latest lipstick or whatever you know but um you know I think there are a lot of, of good things about today that although I'm not, I'm not so at ease with things like Instagram and Facebook I don't really want everyone to come in and see the sort of the warts and all type of thing, but you can still present sure. ideas on Instagram and Facebook in a, in a different way that people could never have got from an album. That's true. I, it feels like it's harder though in, in this day and age to maintain kind of the ambiguity and the mystery, you know, like, uh, I like, I'm sitting here talking to you right now, which is surreal for me. You know, I, I used to just like find your albums at a CD store and I would just be so caught up in the in the artwork and the sort of the aesthetic and as atmosphere of, of the music. Um, right. And but but these days people just don't really quite have that experience. So they don't have time to kind of connect with music in that way. Maybe not. Maybe not. No, but I think that's I think so that's the good thing about some music you know, like I, I can hear one bit of music one day and it doesn't do anything for me at all. 20 years later, I might hear it and then suddenly, pow, the whole thing kicks in. And right. I'm not saying that would happen to my music, but, you know, there's definitely pieces of music that I heard a while back and I went, nah, it's okay. And then I'll hear them now and I go, wow, that's really amazing. Totally. Yeah, no, things, things can hit you in different ways at different times in your life right yeah definitely i mean i know my son listens to like a lot of a wide variation a wider variation of music that i did at that time and i think that can only really be healthy in the long run yeah there's definitely a lot of a lot of you know good um it's it's easy to kind of get caught up in uh all the things that we've lost but we definitely have gained quite a bit too i think so it's hard to make it work sometimes but you know, like, right. I mean, it's like now I'm doing a video game at the moment for something that comes out in December. Oh, wow. Anything, anything you can talk about? <laughs> um, it's fun. It's really good fun. I mean, I'm doing like the mute, the people I'm working for are fantastic. And um, it's like the equivalent of like the Wachowski people, but in a game world, you know, I've got total freedom and they seem to love everything I do. And it's very much like an industrial sort of orchestral space monstrosity that I'm able to create and I've created some quite strange stuff for him so it's um that again is like something that I could never have done before and right. um, I'm very happy to do it you know it's really it's just brilliant fun yeah you've done a fair amount of music for video games or at least things have gotten licensed for video games right maybe yeah i mean i did one game called the mark of creed which was like a nightmare where i had to um i had to make two hours of music or an hour of music all with like less than half a megabyte of data right yeah it's got to be difficult working that's extreme and i had to build up the whole sort of um the macro system for the sequencer and the excitement levels and you know I, th- I think they were just torturing me on purpose you know whereas nowadays all you have to do is give them a stereo file yeah there's the space limitations are non-existent yeah whereas back then that was a uh, that was a playstation 2 game if i remember right i think so yeah i remember the torturous months it took me trying to work out how to build these bloody awful sequences and macro systems it was driving me up the up the wall but thanks to one of the guys there he'd sort of held my hand through it but that can be that 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 can be fun too right like working within extreme constraints no not that extreme (laughs) not that extreme extreme. it was really difficult you know you'd have to bit rate things down to like two bits and oh gosh at that point it's just like a midi file it loses you definitely lose the sense of fun with it you know the only thing i'm good about taking back from or taking back from that game was the idea of a like a sort of an excitement monitor that I think would be quite good when you're listening to music that you could either reverse it, you know, so you put it in the Apple Watch and it reads your biorhythm 
and then it sort of almost chooses the type of music that you want to listen to and then depending how you change throughout the day it would then be able to monitor those differences in the type of music that it should be sending to you. Wow, I think you should be working for uh, Apple Music. That's a pretty good idea. <laughs> but I like I like that about the you know building up excitements. You know, like if you're just walking along, you're just at five percent, and then usually by fifty percent you're killing people. Right. So, but. Um, I always like that idea of the excitement generator. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's very cool. So you're you're uh, you're touring currently, right? Not touring as much as I would like, really. Yeah. I mean, we we've got shows that we're putting on, and it takes a long time to actually organise these shows and to do very, all of very complex stuff. There's a lot of things to really get right before we get on board the plane and get on board the stage. And then whilst talking to other people about other shows for next year. So a lot of the time at the moment, there's a lot of um, conversations and emails and things that really don't turn me on so much. But the end result does. So do you think there's a, a pretty good chance you'll be coming back to America at some point? There's a lot of interest to come back to America. And it's just really being able to make the numbers work. Right. And that's the hardest thing on all of this is you know I could be gigging every night of the week if it wasn't for the financial restraints of, right. of the show but you know I'm not a billionaire so I can't finance the show well myself. you you absolutely should be it's always uh, shocking to me um, because I'm, I'm a huge fan of your music but when I when I mention uh, Juno Reactor to other people not not a ton of people that I know are familiar with your work, and it's it's frustrating because I feel like everybody should know who Juno Reactor is. So do I. <laughs> right. It's unique, I suppose. I mean, it's not really an easy thing to necessarily get into. Although I think the show could be for a much wider audience than any particular genre. Absolutely, I I think there's a lot of potential there, and I. I certainly hope that uh, that you can find a way to to get back into America and do these do the big tours that uh, <laughs> I know that I, I know that you really want to be doing. Exactly, I'd like to do all the festivals across America next year and just stay and live in America. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to live in LA. I mean, LA is one of my favorite places. But I think it's only possibly a good place if you're working. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's actually very much like Seattle. Very kind of everybody's kind of a busybody there. But um, anyway, so it's well, it's been great, um, great getting a chance to to talk to you and pick your brain about various things. Um, do you have any anything coming up around the pike that you want anyone to know about? Not yet, Not but yet. hopefully, Over you know, somewhere. hopefully the game stuff will start sort of leaking out and. Yeah. I'm, lo- I'm looking for good remixes for Pistolero, the return of the Pistolero, and uh, people that give it a good new edge, and, and maybe releasing like a new video and uh, with the return of the Pistolero early next year, and um, and maybe put on a few of the tracks that didn't quite make the album, and that might be fun. Cool. So expect a, a video game uh new music and 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 hopefully hopefully you'll get touring again <laughs> exactly yeah all right man well it's been a lot of fun uh really appreciate you taking the time to uh to, to come on the show yeah nice talking to you yeah man uh all right cheers